So it's Isaiah chapter 49, starting at verse 1 through to verse 13. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due to me, sorry, yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now my Lord says, he who formed me in the womb be his servant to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honoured in the eyes of the Lord and my God has been my strength. He says, is it too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept? I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nations, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see you and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. This is what the Lord says, in the time of my favour I will answer you and in the day of salvation I will help you. I will keep you and I will make you to be a covenant for the people, to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances, to say to the captives, come out and to those in darkness be free. They They will feed beside the roads and find pasture on every barren hill. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat down on them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. I will turn, I will turn all my mountains into roads and my highways will be raised up. See, they will come from the altar, oh, sorry, they'll come from afar and from the north, some from the west, some from the region of Aswan. Shout for joy, you heavens, rejoice, you earth, burst into song, you mountains, for the Lord comforts his people and and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Keep your hands open on the Bible. Uh, We're going to be referring back to that quite a bit. Um, So let me pray uh, before uh, we get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, so we do pray that, Lord, uh, that your spirit will be speaking to us today. Give us ears to listen, minds that are clear, hearts that are ready to be transformed. We pray this all in your son's precious name. Amen. How do you go about fixing life's problems? Do you try and tackle the problem yourself? Do you look to others around you and ask for help? Do you just sweep it under a rug, or are you a person that just gets overwhelmed and struggles to get through? Well, I do admit that I'm all of the above. For me, different problems will make me react differently. 
And this is what the Israelites in the Old Testament has experienced as well. When they were being invaded by the military powerhouse of the time, Babylon, they were faced to ask a question of who will fix this problem, the problem of invasion. And so we read in the story that rather than relying on God, they relied on themselves and made allies with other nations. And because of this, God handed them over to be exiled, banished from the land, and brought into slavery. So as we come to the Israelites in their history when Isaiah was written, the Israelites once again were faced with this very pressing question. How will this problem be fixed? If, if there was any hope, who would it be that would come to fix it? You see, the Israelites were overwhelmed with a sense that God has abandoned them. They were left wondering if there was any hope of returning home and whether there was any hope at all. So as we spend the next three weeks looking at the servant songs of Isaiah, talking about a servant, we're going to be experiencing God's comfort as he reminds that he has not abandoned the Israelites and actually has a plan of rescue and restoration even though they did not deserve it. So as we look at the first servant song, we're going to be introduced to the person that is at the center of God's plan of rescue and restoration, the person who will fix their problem, a chosen servant whose very mission is to save God's people. So as we look at Isaiah 49, I want you to notice something with me. I want you to notice at how intimate the relationship is between the servant and God. The servant himself says in verse 1, The Lord called me, and that he has spoken my name. In verse 2, it says, He made my, and he made me. Verse 3, He said to me. Verse 5, He who formed me. Doesn't this give us a sense that this servant is really God's chosen servant rather than a random person off the street? Doesn't this give him some street cred to demand islands and the world to listen to him? But it also gives us a sense that this servant in every single way is who he is because God has specifically made him that way. You see, his intimacy with God allows everyone who hears the servant words to realize that this is God's servant who is speaking. And it's important because as we read on in the servant's song, we learn that this chosen servant is going to have a special mission that is revealed to us in two parts. Part one of the servant's mission is to display God's splendor. Verse three, he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. God names his servant Israel. But we might be tempted to think that he's talking about the Israelites. But the Israelites are exiled and are slaves to Babylon on their own actions. The Israelites failed to display God's splendor as God called them to be his very own people and be, as a nation, a showcase to the world, the splendor of God. But they failed. They forgot God and look to the other nations around them. 
In another book of the Bible called Ezekiel, which spoke about Israel right before they were exiled in Babylon, Ezekiel the prophet wrote about how the Israelites were so evil that they were outperforming evil deeds than the evil nations around them. You see, it was the Israelites' fault that they were in exile. Though they were tasked to do God's work, they turned their back and chose to live a life however they wanted. But this chosen servant will be sent to display God's splendor and to do the thing that Israel failed to do, which we'll be going to be seeing a little bit later on. The other thing that tells us that this servant is not talking about, uh, this servant is not about the Israelites, is the very fact that this servant has come to save them, which is the second part of the servant's mission. Verse 5, And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself, for I am honoured in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. You see, this servant will be sent to restore Israel. Even though they turned their back to God and did more evil than the evil nations around them, God tells them that he is going to send his servant to go and rescue them and bring them and restore them back to him. You see, God reminds the Israelites that he didn't pack his bag and leave. He didn't give up on them and say, you're on your own. God comforts them telling them that this servant will be sent to rescue and fix their problem. So the Israelites were not to worry or think that the fix will come from their own efforts. They didn't have to think about raising a leader that would somehow overthrow Babylon so that they could be set free. But instead, they just needed to have faith in God, trusting that he will keep his promise about sending someone to rescue them. But as we read on, we find that this chosen servant actually has a bigger rescue or a bigger role than just to rescue Israel. God actually says that this job of rescuing Israel from slavery is actually too small of a job for the servant. So God reveals that not only will the servant rescue and restore the Israelites, but that he will be a light to the nations so that God's salvation, God's rescue can reach to the ends of the earth. We get a glimpse that this servant is actually much more grander, much more important than many would have imagined. His mission moves beyond Israel and is on a global scale. Imagine how comforting these words would be for a nation that were in a position where they had lost everything. But if we were to imagine ourselves as the Israelites, living as slaves in Babylon, having lost everything, their home, their livestock, their freedom, and in a world where military power is everything, wouldn't we expect this servant's mission that is to display God's splendor, rescue and bring back Israel back to God and be a light to the world, to be this great military leader. Well, if we go back to verse 2, we are given a hint of how this servant will achieve his mission in a unique description. So reading from verse 2, it says, He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. 
He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. These descriptions tell us that the chosen servant wasn't going to be a come equipped with a chariot or army. He isn't going to be this amazing military leader that would command battalion after battalion. The servant's mission will be accomplished without military conquest. But we are told that this servant will have a mouth like a sword and that he will use his words as weaponry. Through his words, rescue and restoration will come. It also tells us that this servant will be hidden until the right moment as well. Like so many of God's actions in the Bible, there is no broadcast, no fanfare, no fireworks or extravagant opening ceremony that would signal this servant coming. Like an arrow in its quiver and drawn when it's time to strike, God is going to bring out his servant at the right time. You see, it made sense for the Israelites to have been thinking about a military leader that would somehow overthrow these Babylonians. It would make sense that the Israelites hoped for a military conquest. It was their world. You fight fire with fire, army with army. But God says that their rescue was not going to come from a great military servant, but a servant that's going to be using his mouth. And through his mouth, we're going to see kings, rulers, authorities, all bowing to the servant in his presence. It makes us wonder who this servant is, doesn't it? It makes us wonder what this rescue and restoration is really about, and whether Israel returning home was all there was to it. Well, as we continue in the servant song, we lose the servant's voice and we are told that God is directly speaking in the song. And God paints an image of what the rescue, the rescue that they didn't deserve, will look like through his servant. In verse 8, it says, this is what the Lord says. In the time of my favor, I will answer you. And in the day of salvation, I will help you. I'll keep you and, make you and will make you to be a covenant for the people to restore the land and reassign its desolate inheritances. God says that his servant is going to be a covenant, a promise, if you would like, to the Israelites. What that means is that the promise of rescue and restoration is all going to be founded in this chosen servant. So when the servant will come, the Israelites and even the world will experience rescue and restoration. Which is why the servant tells everyone back in verse 1 to listen to him. Because he is the one that would set the captives free and be a light to those in the darkness. And the following verses show us what the journey back home will be like. Instead of being marred with danger or hardship, the journey back home is a journey that God displays his kindness, his compassion and his splendor. As some of you know, uh, my parents escaped Vietnam during the Vietnam War. An experience they shared with me was about how they and others, would walk, as they walked to their boats, would pick up eaten watermelon rinds and try to suck up any moisture that was left to quench their thirst. This was their cost that they had to pay for their freedom. 
Their journey to freedom was marred with danger and hardship, filled with death, filled with hunger, filled with uncertainty. But as we come to see what God describes what the journey of rescue and restoration will look like, we see something totally different from my parents and many other people's experience. Rather than finding scraps to quench their thirst, the Israelites and the world will be cared for in many ways. They will be led to an abundance of water rather than suffering from thirst. Rather than traveling in hunger, they will be fed. Rather than experiencing the harsh sun beating down onto them, they will be shaded and protected. Rather than having to trek through the slow and dangerous mountain ranges, paths will open up to them like highways. What an amazing image of rescue for the people who forgot who God is and did more evil than the other nations around them. What comfort would have been would it have been for the people who had lost everything, who've lost their homes and hope? So we see that this servant isn't your average Joe. He isn't going to be sent, or he's going to be sent on this grand mission uh, to display God's splendor, to rescue and restore Israel, and be a light to the world. And we have been given a glimpse of how he's going to be achieving this through words and not military conquests. And in this servant, God will display his splendor as he cares for the once captives as he restores them back to himself. So as we come to think who this servant is, it is revealed to us in the New Testament a man who fits this description. Jesus in John 12 says this, Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. You see, Jesus says that he is the one that God has sent to restore and rescue Just like how God said that this servant will be a light to the world, Jesus says that he is the light to the world. Jesus says not only to the Israelites, but us today, that I am the one you have been waiting for. I am the one who has come to rescue and restore you. But not only is he the light, We learn elsewhere in the Bible that he is also the salvation that will reach the ends of the earth. You see, the chosen servant written in Isaiah 700 years prior to Jesus is Jesus. The rescue that God promised is founded in Jesus. He is the one that says to those in darkness and captivity to be free And to come out. And if the similarities are not enough, Jesus tells how he will do this. Continuing on in John 12, Jesus says, If anyone hears my word but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I do not come to judge the world but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life, 
So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. You see, Jesus has not come to rescue the world with a sword or shield. He isn't a commander of a battalion that's going to overthrow the authorities. Like the unique description of the the servant, Jesus comes armed with words. Words that are commanded by God to be spoken. And these words are the words that will be bringing rescue and restoration to God's people. Words are the weapons that Jesus uses to defeat our captors. It frees us from our captors. It rescues us and gives us life. Remember when I suggested that the rescue that the servant was tasked with was bigger than we imagined? Well, it is. Because prior to Jesus coming, Israel did return back home from Babylon. But there was no servant figure of the description found in Isaiah 49 ever appeared to Jesus. And that tells us that the problem that needed fixing ultimately wasn't about Israel returning back home. But it's something much more than that. It's on a grander scale. And Jesus tells us that he has come to rescue us from it. And what this problem that needs fixing is something that's not only going to affect us today, it's not going to affect us tomorrow, not only in a week, in a month, in a year, or ten years' time, it's going to affect us for eternity. And that is the problem of sin. When we turn our backs to God to not recognize the one who made us, the one who cares for us, the one who loves us, and say that we want to live lives our own way, it results in something much more worse than just being kicked out of our homes to live as slaves. What sin does is that it breaks and severs our relationship with God, separating us from his kindness and love forever. Just before Jesus tells that he is the light to the world and the rescue and salvation, we read about the Jewish leaders actually refusing to believe that Jesus is the chosen servant that is sent by God. They didn't think that their problem was a problem of sin. Most likely, they still waited for a servant who will rescue uh, would involve a military conquest. They returned back home, but they are now living under Roman rule. But you see, we're not the Jews in Jesus' days. We most likely don't think here in Sydney that the problem that needs fixing is one about going going back home and establishing their own government again. But instead, we may believe that the problem that needs fixing in our own lives may be in regards to where we live, our status in society, whether we're married or not, our jobs, our family, even our addictions or our health. And yes, these are definitely problems that need addressing, but Jesus shows us that in the grand schemes of things, that they are not as important as the problem of sin. Because you see, sin is a problem that will affect us for eternity. Jesus tells us that we need to recognize, to listen and hear what Jesus has to say, unlike the Jewish leaders who refuse to believe that he is the chosen servant. 
Because it is in Jesus our rescue will come. It is in Jesus that sin is defeated and we are restored back to God. It is in Jesus that we are released from the shackles of sin, brought out of darkness so that we can live life how God always intended it to be. You see, Jesus says that I am the one, I am the one that you have been waiting for. I have come to rescue you from sin and restore you to have a perfect relationship with God and lead you to the fullness of life. But what this also means for us today is that we need to take Jesus' words very seriously. We need to let his words penetrate us and let his words lead us back to the path of rescue and restoration. In Hebrews 4, Jesus' words are described like this. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. You see, Jesus' words are God's words. And like a double-edged sword, they can either be words of comfort that reminds us that no matter what situation we are in, whether good or bad, that God has executed his plan to fix us and save us from our greatest problem of sin. Or they are words that cut deep into our very beings because it shows us who we are, people that need rescue, people that are living in darkness, people that aren't all that what we think we are. So when we're in community groups, reading or discussing the Bible, or when we read the Bible in our own time, whether it be on the train, at work, at home, can I ask, do we take his words seriously? Do we see his words as rescue and as life? Or do we try to find these loopholes, undermining it so that we can live life the way we want? Or do we just say that his words are irrelevant and ignore it altogether or just ignore the things that we don't want to hear? Because you see, just like how Jesus wields and equips himself with God's words, our fight against sin isn't one through wielding what we think or the world thinks is good. But it's one when we solely wield God's word and letting it penetrate our very beings. You see, Jesus is the rescue that we need. He's the chosen servant that God has promised. And he saves us from our sins and restores us back into be, to be in a perfect relationship with God. So let us take his words seriously Let us listen and hear what he has to say and let us follow his instructions because his words lead us into rescue and restoration. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your loving kindness that even before Jesus was born that you spoke of him. We thank you that he is the light of the world and through Jesus we can be rescued and restored. We thank you that you extend your salvation to us today and that you call us back to you. 
So we pray that we recognize that Jesus is the one who you sent and that he is the one who calls us out of darkness, freeing us from the shackles of sin. Amen.